you guys are probably thinking, oh no, we're in for it. That was a long passage. Well, it seems to be my habit is the shorter the verse, the longer the message. So uh, we'll probably be out of here in like half an hour or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> we are doing a whole chapter this morning. And you know, we left Abram in a less than, thank you. We left Abram uh, in a less than pleasing situation. He had gone down to Egypt against the counsel of God, or rather without the counsel of God. He was trying to save himself by his own means. He got himself into quite a bit of trouble there, mostly by his uh, scheming and plotting. And we see him probably skulking on the way back from Egypt. He got a tough lesson down there, and that's where we left him. But this morning, we get to see the other side of the story. Because just like Abram, or just like we also ought to do, when we learn a tough lesson, we don't hang our head for too long. We get back up, and we see the lesson that can be learned from it, and we use that to grow. And that is exactly what Abram does. We see him finally being faithful to the Lord's command to separate from his father's house, to separate from his relatives. This whole chapter is about Abram separating from Lot, and we see finally those blessings that God had promised coming to him. So our message this morning is going to focus on these three things. Abram has learned that God's way is better than his own. He is ready to grow, and he begins by returning to fellowship with God through approaching him by means of sacrifice. Now, they would approach God by means of a blood sacrifice on an altar. For us, it's a little different. We approach him by the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see that in 1 John 1.9. Secondly, he removes himself mentally from his worldly aspirations, all of the works of his own hands, he has removed himself mentally from. And he begins to rely on God's word. And he begins being prepared to obey whatever the revealed will of God is. And so we see that Abram is growing up spiritually. Now we're still pretty early on in Abram's story. He's got a lot of growing to do. And so we see here he is a spiritual adolescent. He is on the right trajectory. He's got a lot of power behind him, getting him to that point of growth. And later on, especially when we get to chapters like chapter 18 or chapter 22, we see more of a mature faith from Abram. So right now we see his immature faith, but it is the beginning of his maturity. And we begin with his return to the land of Canaan. He returns to the place where he departed from the Lord's presence. And this is a separation from the error of his way, a separation from Egypt where he had walked out of fellowship with God. In verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now remember, the Negev is directly east of Egypt. It's not north, but he is going up in elevation. So he is going up to the Negev, but it also has a spiritual idea behind it. He is going back up after having gone down. 
We're going to see this again towards the middle of this passage, or at the end, I guess. But look at, as well at what is happening here. It says that he and his wife went up from the Negev, and they took with them all that belonged to Abram, and they also took Lot with him. We see here a very subtle separation with Lot. Back in Genesis 11.31, when Terah took his family to Haran, it says that Abram, his son, was taken, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and then Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. Lot and Abram are drawn closer here. They are the son and the replacement son of Terah, and then Sarai, his daughter by his second wife. In Genesis 12.5, when we see Abram moving from Haran down into the promised land, it says that Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and then all of their possessions, which they had accumulated. Notice the their possessions in the plural. Both Lot's and Abram's possessions are seen together as one group here. And then they took all the persons which they had acquired in Haran. Abram is separating mentally from Lot, and it shows. He's taking his wife and all that belongs to him, and he also takes Lot back up, Lot's household. Here we also see that something has changed. Lot is here very rich. He's rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. Now, interesting, this very rich is the word severe. He is very severe but he's severe in livestock, silver, and gold. So contextually, we understand this to mean rich. But Moses has paired this with the reason that they went into Egypt in the first place. Because when they went into Egypt, there the famine was severe. So the absence of the goods of this world being severe caused them to leave the land. And that was the problem in Canaan. But now we see a new problem in Canaan. Now Abram is severe in prosperity. That doesn't sound like a problem to us, but we'll see in just a second, that sets up the conflict in this chapter. Also, we see he's severe or rich in livestock, silver, and gold. But when he was in Egypt, what he acquired was not silver and gold, but sheep, oxen, donkeys, female donkeys, and camels, and also more servants. So we see he is engaging in trade with the locals. He is using the prosperity of this world to make more prosperity. Abram is living in and among the land. But here we see, after he is separating from Egypt, it is important not just to separate, but to separate to something else. So he goes on his journeys and he's not going aimlessly. We see him retracing his steps back to the place where his problems had begun, where he had taken the wrong turn. So he goes on his journeys from Negev as far as Bethel. Now here in the on his journeys, it has the sense of by stages. He is continuing little by little, and he's working his way back up the land. It's not just something he was able to do in a single day, especially now that he is weighed down by all the burdens of this world. But he goes from Negev to Bethel, the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So remember where that was. He had come down from Shechem just a few miles to Bethel and Ai, these two points with a valley in between. 
He camped out on the east side of Bethel with Ai on the further east, and he is literally then standing between the house of God and a ruinous heap. Bethel means house of God, Ai means ruinous heap. He has a choice to make. Interesting here that Moses records this as a stop that he makes. Rather than staying on God's side of the land, he chooses to leave. He walks away and walks out of God's fellowship. He goes to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. Notice all of the terms that Moses is using here to point back to he had already been here. He had already done this. This was land he already treaded. These were altars that he already built. He was already set up and ready to go. He was just simply returning back to where he had left. And it is the same in the spiritual life of the Christian. We don't have to start from square one when we walk out of fellowship. We have doctrine built up. We know the word of God. When we walk away from it, it's not starting over. It's going back to the place where we left him. Going back to the place where we decided that we are going to be our own gods and look, listen to our own words rather than his. And so that is what Abram is doing here. He is going back to the place where he had departed from the word of God. Because when he's there, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Remember back here in Genesis 12, 7, when he had first got to Shechem, remember God had told him, go out of Haran down to the land which I will show you. And when he arrives in Shechem, there God approaches him. Here we see Abram approaching God again, but when Abram had gone as far as God wanted him to go, God approached him and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And so Abram's response was to build an altar to the Lord there who had appeared to him. But then he kept going without God's telling him to go. He proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. But God is actually absent from that verse. God doesn't or is not recorded here as having responded to Abram's call. And although Abram has gone back up from Egypt through the Negev back to Bethel and Ai, Abram goes back to that altar and he calls upon the Lord and there's no answer. This might strike us. We think, well, Abram's doing everything right. He's going back. But there is still a place where Abram has not been faithful. There's still a place where Abram is holding on and we see that resolved here. And we see it resolved through yet another problem that occurs. In Genesis 13, 5, it says, Now Lot, who went with Abram, indicating that he had gone down to Egypt and come back up with him, he also had flocks, flocks and herds and tents. That's sheep and cattle there. We get the sense that Lot is not nearly as rich as Abram, but he has quite a bit of material still. He wasn't enriched by selling his wife down in Egypt, as Abram was, but he did apparently have riches of his own. But the problem is this. The land could not sustain them together. They left Canaan originally and went down to Egypt because the land couldn't sustain them because they didn't have enough. Now they come back up and the land can't sustain them because they have too much. They went and acquired the world's goods by their own means. 
and God's blessing wasn't there to support it. Remember what it looked like last time Abram encountered problems with God's promises. Abram continually tries to solve the problem himself, and we do this too. Whenever we encounter a problem after God has made a promise, as we see his promises in Scripture, we try to take them ourselves without letting God give them. So when God promised that Abram would have a descendant, Abram realizes that his wife Sarai is barren, and so he adopts an heir. He adopts Lot so that the promises of God can be passed on to his adopted son Lot. Here we see his separation in chapter 13 from Lot. We see it finished in chapter 14, but when we get to chapter 15, we see he's adopted another heir, Eliezer of Damascus. God tells him, no, not that heir, but one from your body. So Abram tries to make his own, his own heir, and he comes up with Ishmael. And God says, no, it's going to come from your wife's body as well. God is continually trying to show Abram that God is going to provide this blessing. Abram is not going to have to take it from God. He only has to rest in God's divine intervention. But as well with the land promise, Abram got down to the land and saw that it was occupied by the Canaanites. So he kept moving and kept moving until he came to an unoccupied patch of desert and then saw that it was not able to sustain him because it didn't have the blessing of the Lord and it wasn't watered. There wasn't much vegetation, so he moves into Egypt where it is watered. Abram's solution was to leave the land. When he came to the land and saw that it did not appear to be given to him already. In doing this, he abandoned the land and he risked his own life and he risked the promise of the seed. Abram caused a lot of problems by trying to solve his own problems. But here in his reversal, he is returning to the land and he finds that the land cannot support him. But instead of trying to solve that problem on his own by his own means, he goes back to something that God had told him to do in the first place. His solution is to listen to God's word, to listen to God's revealed will, and to separate from Lot. Genesis 13, 7 says that there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. We have two problems here. There's strife, there's fighting or quarreling or bickering. In fact, this word rib in the Hebrew is used by God when he brings legal uh, penalties against Israel for covenant unfaithfulness. When he acts with the prophets as his prosecuting attorneys, he says, I have a lawsuit with you, Israel. He uses this word rib. This is a conflict between these two that needs settling. And it is going to be settled. But the second problem is that now there's not just the Canaanites in the land, but where they've come to, there's now Canaanites and Perizzites. This is an amplification of the previous plot conflict. 
Now these parasites, they are a tribe of peoples, but we don't know who they are or where they come from. In Genesis 34:30, we see that it is the Canaanites and the parasites that are inhabiting the land whom Jacob's children are not a blessing to as they go in and circumcise all the men in Shechem and then slaughter them. It is the Canaanites and parasites that are dwelling in the land. The people that, or the problem that people usually have with the parasites being in this land is that the parasites are not children of Canaan. In Genesis 10, they are not listed among his descendants. We've got Sidon, Heth, Jebusites, the Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and the Hamathites. No parasites. And so people say, well, this is the land of Canaan, and these are not children of Canaan, and therefore the parasites must not be a people group, but as it's used in Judges, it must mean the rural population or the peasants. And so they say that the Canaanites are the city dwellers and the Perizzites are the rural dwellers or the nomads. The only problem is that every time Perizzites are mentioned, including in Judges, they're mentioned as a people group. In contrast with the Canaanites, there are the Perizzites. In Genesis 15:19, we've got the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. All of these are people groups. The Perizzites would oddly stand out as just a nomadic people. And notice all of these names in pink, none of these are Canaan's children's either. Children either. The same in Exodus 3.8. We've got the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Hittites and Amorites are not children of Canaan, but they are people groups. Hivites and Jebusites are Canaan's children. They are people groups. Canaan is a people group. Perizzites are a people group. We've got two options. Either it's a people group that doesn't come from Canaan, or they are grandchildren of the Canaanites. Just because they are not sons doesn't mean they cannot be a tribe of grandsons or great-grandsons. Notice it's been about two or three hundred years since Babel, and they are able to have divided up just as much as the American tribes have divided up from the 13 colonies. Just because we can't all trace our roots back to those colonies, and I mean, there's been more people arriving in the land since, doesn't mean that we're not people groups. Same goes for this. This is a time of migration. After Babel, coming off of the Ice Age, people are moving. And so we have parasites in the land, and that shouldn't bother us. But here we want to look at the resolution of this controversy with Lot. Because there's strife, and strife is something that must be resolved. And Abram has a resolution. That resolution is to sacrifice the land that he had been promised after he had finally come back into it in order to resolve this issue with Lot. Now, some people take issue with Abram sacrificing this land and say, well, it was promised to him by God and he has no right to give it away. And while that might be true, the narrator, Moses, does not treat this as an issue. In fact, he treats this as something that Abram had done with wisdom. 
And I think we would be just as wrong to take this and say that Abram is doing something wrong here as we would in Genesis 22, when Abram finally receives his descendant and God tells him to sacrifice him. And he faithfully goes to do so. We see in the beginning of Abram's story that he is willing to give up immediate, immediately receiving the promises of God because he trusts that God is going to be faithful to his promise and will somehow work it out. The same with Isaac. When God tells him to sacrifice Isaac, Hebrews tells us what was going through Abram's mind. And it was that God has promised this descendant. And so if he sacrifices him, God is so faithful to his promises that the only solution is that God will resurrect Isaac if he is asked to kill him. And so we see the beginning of Abram's faith in God and willingness to sacrifice instant gratification of the promises that do belong to him because he trusts God. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Now this is a term, Meribah, which many of us, if we've ever read Numbers before, should recognize, Numbers or Exodus. We'll look at that in a second. We'll look at that now. Psalm 95, 8 through 10, the psalmist writes, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said that they are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. There is strife that arose in Israel after they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, because they hadn't learned to trust God. They hadn't learned to trust his promises. And Israel is about to enter into the land where they will need to depend on God. They will need to depend on his provision. And they come into a conflict with him. And so Moses is recording this event and carefully choosing his language to remind Israel of the trustworthiness of God and the needlessness of this quarreling and bickering because God has it and God is going to resolve it. And so we look to Exodus 17, 1 through 2, where this conflict was so stunning that Moses even named the location conflict, Meribah. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, just as Abram had journeyed by stages towards the promised land, according to the command of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled, rib, with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me, and why do you test the Lord? Their faith was not settled in the Lord, and so they did not trust the Lord's servant. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us? and our children and our livestock with thirst. They do not trust God to follow through with his promises. God was the one who pulled them out of the land of Egypt. God was the one who made them a people in Egypt. And God had promised them a land, and he was faithfully bringing them out to it. And they were accusing him of bringing them out there to slaughter them. 
So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand, take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God miraculously supplied their needs here. God settled the conflict. But Moses wanted them to remember God's faithfulness, and so he reminded them of their faithlessness by naming this place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And remember, while they're in this Exodus period, this is the time in which Moses is writing and delivering to these, this, these children of Israel the book of Genesis. And so this would stand out to them as an indication of what conflict resolution actually looks like with God. Abram did it right. He depended on God. He trusted God and he trusted God's promises. Israel needs to take some big leaps of faith as they're going into this promised land. They need to grow up and they need to mature. Sadly, we know that the first generation of Israel does not succeed in doing that. And even Moses, because of a second Meribah event, does not get to enter the land because he did not trust the word of God, but he took matters into his own hands. Abram here is letting God lead. He says to him, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Abram is recognizing their kinship here. He's recognizing that they're from the same household, the household of their father, but he's also treated Lot still as an heir. Although he's separating from him, notice that he is offering to Lot, his presumed heir, a portion of the promised land that was promised to Abram's descendants, not to him. If we remember back in verse 7 of chapter 12, when he got to Shechem, he said, this land is for your descendants. And so Abram is not acting unfaithfully to God, but he is telling his descendant, the whole land is before you. Take it. This word Eretz in the Hebrew is always used in reference to, or is when the promised land is referenced, only the word Eretz is used. No other word for land or dirt or anything is used for the promised land. This is the land that God has promised to Abram. But God has also told him to separate. So he says to Lot, separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abram defers to the lesser. He defers to the lesser uh, party in this conflict and says, you get to choose. Whatever you would like, you take it and I will take what is left. Now, Lot has a different way of choosing than we see Abram does, where Abram puts it into the sovereign will of God, 
trusting in God's promises, Lot takes things into his own hands. In Genesis 13.10, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Now, this is not the land that God had promised them, the valley of the Jordan. This is beyond that promised land. Lot, it appears, turns around and looks at the circle of Jordan and says, I think I'll take that. And his reason? He saw it. It looks pretty good. It's well watered. They had been dwelling in the Negev up until now. They had moved up to the high hills between Hebron and Jerusalem, which wasn't Jerusalem at that point, and Bethel and Ai. These are all high hills completely dependent on the Lord to bring rain in order to be well watered. But he's looking at this river valley and he says, that's well watered. I don't need God to help me with that. Nothing's going to change the fact that this is well watered because a river runs right through it. This is a lot like Eve's assessment of the tree. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And so she took from the fruit and ate. No mention of God's divine interpretation of the things that she was seeing. She saw it. It was good. She took it. Lot saw it. It was good. And he took it. The sons of God in Genesis 6 as well. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And so they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. No mention of seeking God's wisdom here. No mention of relying on God. It is self-reliance, self-deification. Moses steps in here and interjects something to bring it to mind the result of Lot's choice. He reminds them that this is the location that God is going to destroy. He says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, Lot looks and he chooses, and had he consulted with God, God may have told him, you don't want to go down there. They've only got a few years left. Just like the sons of, sons of God who took the sons or the daughters of men because of their wickedness and violence, God was about to destroy them with the earth. And Sodom is going to be a picture of how God operates with nations. Now that he has destroyed the whole earth and then divided the whole earth into nation groups so he can deal with one at a time. He utterly destroys Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's gone. In fact, that is probably where the Dead Sea came from, was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice as well what he likens this land to. When he sees it, he says it's like the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden. And it's like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Now, at first we might think, well, that sounds great. God made the Garden of Eden and he put man in it to dwell there. But the Garden of Eden story does not stop there. In fact, the end of the Garden of Eden comes at the end of Genesis 3. 
after the fall and look at what happened with man's right to be in this land. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Lot looks at this land and says, that looks like forbidden land. Just like Eve looked at the fruit and says, that looks like forbidden fruit. Sounds good to me. And to reinforce this idea, he says it looks like the land of Egypt. The land that they had just come from. The land that they should not have gone to in the first place. The land that caused the previous conflict and that they were unceremoniously expelled from. Lot looks at this and lusts after this land because it looks like everything that God has told him no so far. And it's tempting. He also notes that it is like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar, which again I think is Moses cleverly winking at what is about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because how does Lot escape from Sodom and Gomorrah? but to run to Zoar. In fact, God at first had told him to flee to the mountains, the mountains from which he is probably looking down at Sodom as he chooses to live in Sodom in Genesis 13. God says, get yourself up those mountains. Lot says, I can't make it up the mountains. Can I go to Zoar instead? It's a little town. You can spare it. You don't have to destroy Zoar. God grants him his wish, but perhaps it would have been better for Lot in the end, if he had gone up the mountains like God told him. Because even after fleeing from Sodom, Lot's story doesn't end well. Here in Genesis 19.23, it says, The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now again, a little irony here. Sodom and Gomorrah was not dependent on rain to be watered. But God sends rain anyways, just not the rain that Lot would have expected. It is fire and brimstone. Lot made a bad choice. It looked like the best choice. It looked like he was taking for himself the best land there. But God knows the future and Lot doesn't. God has the right to assess and to make a judgment, and Lot doesn't. Lot is dependent, just like all men are dependent on God's revelation. When we observe the world around us, it is not our right to interpret it as we would. It is God's creation. He has created it for a purpose. He has a goal and an end for it. He has a goal and an end for us as well. We are dependent on the Lord. And much of spiritual maturity, in fact, you could say all of spiritual maturity, is summed up in learning to depend on God rather than to depend on yourself. In Genesis 13, 11, it says, So Lot chose for himself, just like the sons of God chose for themselves and took from the daughters of men. He chose for himself the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. 
That always foreshadows some sort of problem here, especially in Genesis. But for Abram, this was still a good result. Thus they separated from each other. And so we look here at what this meant for Abram. And we want to look particularly at the doctrine of separation. Now to save time, I printed on the back of all of your bulletins a longer write-up of what the doctrine of separation is. You can read that in your own spare time. But specifically looking at Abram, how does the doctrine of separation apply to him? We see that God's dispensational responsibility for Abram was twofold. One, to separate, and two, to be a blessing. And so there were two stages of separation for Abram. First, he begins to separate from Lot mentally. This is a shift of attachment away from one object, and just as importantly, a shifting of that attachment onto something else. Abram is shifting his attachment away from wealth and property and land and Lot, his, his heir and his nephew, and he is shifting it on to God and God's promises. In this case, Abram broke his attachment to his father's household via Lot mentally as he began to place his trust in God. And this finally resulted in physical separation. Notice Abram did not physically separate from Lot before he was mentally ready to do so. Because then he would have caused or created a vacuum that would have just gone searching for something else to fill that void. But Abram was responsible here in number three, separation not from the world, but specifically to God. Yes, he's separating from his father's household, from his relatives, from his country. But the point is that he is separating himself to God. This is the idea of sanctification being set aside for God's use, being set aside for holy living. And this does have direct application for us. Just as Israel would have read this and learned from it, the importance of separating themselves from the world, so do we. You see, separation from the world is a good thing, and separation doesn't mean isolationism, but it means insulation. Insulation among God allows us to live in the world mentally separated from it while we are waiting to be physically separated from it. For us, the doctrine of separation can be summarized this way. Legitimate separation is only possible through the perception of Bible doctrine. This was God's promise for Abram. Bible doctrine just hadn't been written yet, but it was revelation from God. And as he depended on that and as he trusted in that, he was able to separate mentally from the world. By which the believer establishes clear thinking and right priorities in life. With discernment from spiritual maturity, the growing believer can recognize and avoid entanglements that would prevent him from fulfilling God's plan. Lot was preventing Abram from fulfilling God's plan. These might include professional associates, organizations, friends, romantic companions, even family members. But separation always begins with a change of mental attitude toward the person or people involved. 
And so by focusing on the doctrine in his own soul, the word of God that had been applied to him, he is not seduced by the human viewpoint of his friends, family, or close acquaintances who live outside of God's plan. Notice Lot's human viewpoint, his worldliness in making this decision. Abram wasn't swayed by that. He had a different hope, a different anchor for his soul. But also, he's not antagonistic towards Lot either. He defers to him. He didn't have to. In the relationship between Lot and Abram, Abram has the upper hand. In riches, Abram has the upper hand. In promise, Abram has the upper hand. But he deferred to Lot. He chose to bless Lot by giving him the first choice. He separated mentally, and he continues to treat him graciously while eliminating any mental attitude sins of malice, instability, bitterness, or arrogance. And you see, this is the importance of when we are mentally separating first rather than separating physically first. Because if we don't make that mental separation first, it's going to lead to malice, instability, bitterness, and arrogance as we look at the next person and see what they have, and we still desire that stuff. This is dangerous. If we separate physically before we separate mentally from the world, this often leads to legalism. It leads to pride. Oh, I'm better because I'm separated. I'm better because I don't do this and I don't do that. This is one of the main things that Paul deals with in the books of Romans and 1 Corinthians. When he's telling these believers who have separated themselves from various sometimes random things like eating meats, some say, oh, I'm better because I don't eat meat. And others say, oh, they're worse because they do eat meats. Paul here is talk or there is talking about mental separation. They need to separate mentally from the world so that they're not involved in legalism that really has no grounds. When we put our confidence and dependence in God first, we don't have our confidence and dependence in self that would lead to arrogance. And so this is an important doctrine as we look at Abram and we see, yes, he is separating, yes, he's being humble, but no, he's not being arrogant about it. We want to know how do we do that? Well, the answer is clear. We separate to God, not just away from the world. 1 John 2.15 summarizes this concept. And if you remember our divisions in 1 John chapter 2 with the fathers, the young men, and the children, this comes as the warning to the young men, those who were beginning their journey of spiritual growth and maturity. They knew Bible doctrine. They knew truth. Now they are learning to live by means of that truth. And this is John's only warning to them. He says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Separate mentally from the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, everything that Lot was demonstrating there, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. If Lot had depended on God, he would have seen that this land before him that he's choosing is passing away. It is short for the world. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Just in case we didn't quite get the point, Moses is about to drive it home. 
Genesis 13, 12, we see the separation enacted. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. We see here a little map. The black circle is Bethel, that hill country looking over the Jordan Valley. And that whole Jordan Valley that he looks down and sees, Sodom and Gomorrah was somewhere there, probably under the Dead Sea. Moses is not about to leave this without commenting that now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. This is even worse criticism than the people before the flood. Those were just wicked exceedingly. Here, they're wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Something is going to happen. Even without reading ahead, we see the writing on the wall here. Lot has made a bad choice. But Abram has acted faithfully. Abram has made a good choice. And God is about to reconfirm his promise to Abram. Now with this separation complete, God is able to let Abram experience the blessing that was promised. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, the condition of God speaking again. Remember back in Genesis 13, verse 4, when Abram had come to that altar and sacrificed in the name of the Lord, and there was no response. This is the first time God speaks to Abram that's recorded here since he left Shechem. Because finally, Abram is walking in faithfulness once again. He has been faithful to God's command to separate himself from his father's household. He has now finally and completely done that. And so when God speaks to Abram, he says, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west. There's something very interesting going on here as well. We might not notice it because the translators have translated this word now, but it means please. And they do this because God doesn't say please, but he does. Four times in the Old Testament, God says please. Three of them are to Abram, and one of them is to Moses. This word for please is used in Genesis alone 60 times but of God only three times. We saw it once already in this passage. Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. And please separate from me. God is going to say please to Abram again in Genesis 15:5. He took him outside and said, now please look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. In Genesis 22, God is going to say please once again. He said, take now, please, your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God is petitioning 
Abram to exercise trust in an extraordinary way. In all of these, in the promise of the land in Genesis 13, in the promise of a descendant in his old age in Genesis 15, and when he tells him to go and sacrifice his only son, Isaac, in chapter 22. God has earned his trust. God does not need to say please. But he petitions this believer nonetheless. Also notice that God uses please with Abram after Abram has demonstrated great faith and is in fellowship with him. Because God is not here having to beg Abram to trust him. Abram is operating on the basis of trust, on the basis of faith, and God says, please go one step further here. Trust me in a way that you have never trusted anyone or anything before. Trust me with a promise that no one but God and God alone could ever make. Trust me because of who I am. God uses please only once outside of the book of Genesis, and it's in Exodus 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt after that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now, please, in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. He's telling Moses after he's rallied the troops, after the ninth plague and just before the tenth, when they're about to be expelled from the land, he tells Moses to rally the troops for one more task and to ask them from their captors to give them money in their departure. Now, Israel rightly deserved this. They had worked as slaves without pay for decades. And they are here supposed to trust the Lord, going to their neighbors and asking for silver and gold. After nine plagues from their God had ravaged the land, and the night before, God was about to go through and slaughter the firstborn of every tribe. Imagine the bloodlust for Israel that Egypt would have. Imagine the fear that Israel would have if they didn't trust the Lord in this area to go to their neighbors and ask them now for money, ask them for riches. God is telling Moses and God is telling Israel to exercise faith like they've never exercised it before. And he does so really when they're at their peak of faithfulness here. The first century of Israel doesn't get much better than this. It's pretty much downhill after that. Uh, Genesis or Exodus 10 is where we see that all of them believed on the Lord. So we know that they are all in fellowship and they are all believers at that time. But he tells him, look northward and southward, eastward and westward. Lot's offer was just left or right. Notice how God has anchored Abram to the land. Looking upward, looking downward south. The word for south is the Negev, the land that he had come from. Eastward is toward the sun in Hebrew, and westward is toward the sea. So these terms in Hebrew and to Abram actually 
indicate specifically the geological plots of land that he is supposed to look at. And here God says one more thing. After he has Abram survey it, notice Lot surveyed it on his own and made his choice. God tells Abram to survey it. And then he tells Abram, all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Here he is increasing the promise. In Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And the land that Abram saw was only Shechem. Here we get a much larger swath of land to his descendants, but also specifically to him. And now we see the duration of this promise as well. Forever, without end, unceasingly, it belongs to Abram. This is a land grant. Only God, being the creator of this land, has the right to give such unconditional ownership of land. He doesn't only amplify the land promise, though. He also steps in and amplifies the seed promise. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Notice he doesn't say children. He says offspring, using the Hebrew word zera, meaning seed. In other words, one who is going to come specifically from your own body, Abram. He doesn't get it quite yet. He's going to try to adopt yet another heir before he's fully understanding this. But before, he was simply promised to be made a great nation. And he was given promises for his descendants. And now he's told not only will he have descendants and not only will he be a great nation, but his children, his descendants, will be numerous, unable to be counted. The same term is used in Revelation 12.8 to talk about the people's in the land outside of Israel, that they were as the dust of the earth. Revelation 28, we see the fulfillment of God's purpose in creation that man would go and multiply and fill the earth. God is saying, I am going to fulfill my purpose for creation through you, Abram. I am going to fill the earth and I'm going to use you to do it. God also tells him not just to look, but to get up and to go walk about the land. Now, a lot of teachers in the church age teach that Lot's promises of a land were only spiritual and not physical. Lot did not go and walk through spiritual promises. He went and walked through physical promises. God promised him the physical land. He gave him the physical geological dimensions of it. And he told him, go put your foot on that promised land. Go walk through it. Go see it physically. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. No way Abram interpreted this as just a spiritual promise, that God was not actually talking about the physical land there. God made a promise. God is going to give this land to Abram and to his descendants. And just as Abram knew that God would have to resurrect his son Isaac in order to fulfill his promise, we know that God is going to have to resurrect Abram to fulfill this promise. 
because we're about to see Abram make a move once again after he surveys the land. He's going to move to the hills of Hebron. And that will be his home for the rest of his life. He will never actually acquire all of this land that he walked through through the promise of God. But God's promises are good. God's promises cannot fail. And Abram will possess this land in the kingdom. There's a similarity here between what God tells Abram to do and what God tells Moses to do. At the very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verses 1 through 4, God tells Moses to go up on Mount Nebo and survey all of the land. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo on top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, those are in the north, and the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev in the south, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Abram stood at Bethel and looked across the valley of Jericho and all around him in all directions. Moses stands on the other side of the valley and he looks into the land that he is not going to step foot on until the resurrection. Because in Deuteronomy 34.4, God says, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Moses does not get to walk through the land like Abram did, but Joshua does. Joshua does get to step foot in the land. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise across, across the Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. God is faithful about his promises, and he might not do things the way we expect him to. But God is so faithful about his promises that even death does not stop him from giving those promises fully to those who they were promised to. In fact, even our own sanctification, which is promised, may not occur in this lifetime. But we have the guarantee that when we see him, we will be like him. In that case, death actually confirms the promise. Death, death finalizes the experience of the gift. Death does not stop the believer in God because death does not stop God. Death is not something that has stumped God or that troubles God. In fact, it was by means of the death of Christ that we were saved. And it was in his resurrection that we see God's ability to raise from the dead. We see Christ's ability to save from the dead. We have our promise and our guarantee in Christ. 
who will raise us from the dead. And so after Abram sees all the land, after he goes and walks through it, now he moves his tent and he comes and dwells by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. It's okay at this point that Abram is not in Shechem because at that point, Shechem was the only land that God had told Abram that he would give to him. And now Abram has seen all the land that God is planning to give to him. And he's allowed to make his choice of where he will live in it. There is freedom in God's will, but we don't go ahead of God. This is still north of where Abram ended up. This is north of the Negev, but it is in the southern region, south of where Jerusalem is today. And he chose the highest point in Israel. Among the promised land, Abram chose the land through which he could survey all of God's promise. Mount Hebron is 3,366 feet above sea level. And where Lot went in Sodom today is 1,412 feet below sea level, the lowest point of dry land on earth. Now, I don't think it was that low when Lot moved there, but it got carved out when God wiped it from the face of the earth. We have two believers set on two different tracks here. One who has matured or is in the process of maturing, who is trusting in God, who is moving to high places. And the other who has set himself in the place of destruction. And he's going to suffer the same physical turmoil that the world does because he's aligned himself with the world. We don't flirt with disaster as believers. We don't flirt with the world. We separate from the world, just as Abram was doing. And we separate to the promises of God. We separate to the fellowship of God. In closing, then, Abram has learned that God's way is better than his own. He is ready to grow, and he begins by returning to fellowship with God through approaching him by sacrifice. 13 or ver chapter 13, verse 4. He removes himself mentally from his worldly aspirations, and he relies on God's word and is prepared to obey the revealed will of God. Abram is growing spiritually, and we want to mimic him in that. We want to depend on God fully. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for giving us so much detail about the life of Abram, more detail than anyone yet we've seen in Genesis, and we understand why, because he was truly a friend of yours. He was someone who you taught maturity and who learned to walk with you just as we learned to walk with you and just as Israel needed to learn to walk with you. We thank you for your promises, and we thank you that we can trust you for who you are. We thank you for your integrity that we can see throughout all the words of Scripture. We thank you for giving us scripture by which we can come to know who you are as we observe you in your word. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus, who died and rose again, guaranteeing us your promise of salvation and resurrection. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.